kid, I had a strong dislike for communion or the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, or Eucharist, whatever term you're most familiar with. And my dislike of communion was not just because it made the service longer, although there was that. My dislike was really that I was literally afraid of communion. I was afraid for my life. I was afraid for my health. I was, I was literally afraid for the life and the health of my family. And let me tell you why that was my experience. Uh, the church that I grew up in, we had communion uh, once a month on the first Sunday of the month, much as we do here in SCF online. And uh, our morning service was at 11 o'clock. And so that service would usually wrap up around noon and then there'd be a closing hymn and a closing prayer. And then on the first Sunday of the month, we would have communion. So it would begin somewhere around 12.05 or 12. 10. And uh, kind of the way that it would begin would be like um, dim the lights, cue the sad music, and then from the rear of the auditorium would, uh, I don't want to say march, that's probably not the right word, but in, in, in choreographed fashion would come the deacons, uh, all men, all in suits, all looking profoundly uh, serious and even mournful, and they would come up to the front of the auditorium. And when they got to the front, they would kind of break off in, in two directions, and they would take their assigned seats flanking on either side the, the pastor who was in the center. Actually, a friend of mine called this sad guys in suits, and uh, that was a pretty apt description of what the visuals were like. The pastor would then rise and uh, call us to a time of self-examination. And to prepare us for self-examination, he would read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, which I'm going to read right now. I'm going to read it from the NIV. If you have a Bible handy, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 27 to 32. So here's what Paul writes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to, here it is, examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. And so the pastor would read this passage of scripture and then he would ask us to uh, bow our heads and to close our eyes and to examine ourselves. And so we would sit for several minutes in silence and um, the pastor uh, wanted us to examine ourselves to be sure that we would eat worthily and drink uh, worthily, eating and drinking uh, in a worthy manner. And so we would sit in silence, uh, heads bowed, eyes closed. 
when I was nine or ten, uh, you know, experiencing this nine or ten years old, I, um, I guess in my my mind, uh, what I was to be doing in those quiet moments of self-examination was to uh, really to to try and dredge up uh, from the past month since the last time we had communion, to try and dredge up all my wrong thoughts all of my selfish comments, all of my unkind words, all of my misdeeds, and to um, um, remember those and to uh, ask God for forgiveness um, so that I could eat and drink unworthily. And if I didn't do that, or if I forgot some of them, or if I didn't examine thoroughly enough, then I run the risk of eating or drinking unworthily. And if I eat and drink unworthily, God might kill me or make me sick. Or he might kill some of my family or make them sick. And that sounds like a really extreme uh, thing uh, to think about as a nine or ten year old, but you've, um, you know, when I was nine, my oldest brother, Mike, who I idolized. He died when he was just 17 years of age. I was nine at the time. And so here I am in these communion services, and I'm wondering to myself, did my brother eat and drink unworthily? And did God kill him? And could God do that to me? And could God do that to other members of my family? And so in those services, we would eat the bread and drink the cup. And then I would wait literally for death. And when it seemed like I was okay, I would look down the pew at my family and I would see that they were okay. And it was like, phew, uh, dodged a bullet for another month. And so the burning question uh, for today is a question that I've been asked a few times since since arriving uh, here about a year and a half ago at SCF. Um, And the question is basically this, why don't we have a time of self-examination before communion like Paul calls for here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And, And really, that's a very, very good question. And I wonder for some of you what your experiences with communion have been like. Uh, Have you experienced communion as a time of uh, introspection? A time where, you know, you evaluate your uh, track record, evaluate your performance. Uh, I've come to find that this is actually a pretty common um, point of view. There are many churches when communion is about to start. They dim the lights and cue the sad music and call people to this introspective uh, time of examination, of dredging up sin and, and uh, bringing it before the Lord uh, to be forgiven so that we can be qualified and suitable and worthy of eating and uh, drinking the cup. And I found this to be a pretty, actually a pretty common approach to the Lord's Supper. So I wonder, you know, what's, what has your experience been, maybe as a child or maybe as an adult, with the Lord's Supper? Have you experienced as, the, as this time of introspection to kind of drum up uh, 
your past track record and to try and get clean and get forgiven and, and get right so that you can eat the bread worthily and drink the cup uh, worthily. I just, I just want to say, kind of for the record, that that is a, I believe, an entirely wrong uh, perspective of the Lord's table. You know, for starters, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, the me he was talking about uh, isn't me, uh, it's him. We do it in remembrance of him. We remember Jesus. And I think, you know, in a way, I think what we've done is we've taken this statement, do this in remembrance of me, and we've kind of turned it in on ourselves. And we wonder if we're good enough, if we're forgiven enough, cleansed enough, purified enough, if we've um, uh, thoroughly examined uh, enough. But the point of communion is to have our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and to celebrate what he did, to to remember the cross and to remember the resurrection and to celebrate his words of, of, um, of affirming a new covenant of grace, uh, whereby we have this new and living way through Jesus into the very presence of God, apart from temple and apart from human uh, priest. And that we celebrate this new covenant of grace through tangible elements of cup and bread. And so what does Paul mean? In 1 Corinthians 11, 28, when he talks about people examining themselves before they eat and drink. Well, let me say right off the bat that that was an entirely appropriate thing for the Corinthian church to do. It was entirely appropriate and right in that context that that Corinthian church examined their behavior. Uh, but what does it mean for us? Well, in order to understand what this may mean for us, we need to understand what it meant for the Corinthians. And so we need to understand that context. Context is so crucial. Whenever you're reading the scripture or studying the scripture, the, understand, uh, the understanding of context, historical context, grammatical, cultural, geographical uh, context is so essential to a proper understanding of scripture so that we can then uh, apply the scripture accurately. And so our, our question again for today is, is what's the deal with this time of self-examination? Should we uh, be doing that? Uh, when we come to the Lord's table, should we be looking back uh, uh, a, a week or a month or a quarter or a year, whatever it is, and, and, and asking Jesus to, to kind of bring to the surface all those things we've done wrong so that we can get more forgiveness and more cleansing so that we can eat and drink uh, worthily? In a word, no. That is not uh, what the Lord's table is about. You know, Christian, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ on the cross took away your sin. He has forgiven you, past, present, and future. You are perfectly forgiven, perfectly cleansed, made perfectly righteous by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so God is not somehow uh, deceitful or duplicitous. So God is not on the one hand gonna say, you're perfectly forgiven, perfectly cleansed, made perfectly new by the sacrifice of Jesus. And then on the other hand say, well, you need some more forgiveness and you need some more cleansing uh, before uh, communion. That would be really inconsistent. So what is 1 Corinthians 11, um, 28 really talking about in context? Well. To understand the context, we need to go back uh, to verse 17. So let's, let's do that. 
In verse 17, Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, we've got to remember uh, who Paul is writing here to. He is writing to the church in Corinth. Um, what was Corinth like and what was this church like? Well, last week Dave talked a little bit about Ephesus and kind of the lascivious nature of the culture of Ephesus. So Corinth is like Ephesus, but on steroids. You know, we sometimes talk about Las Vegas as Sin City. Uh, Corinth is Sin City on steroids. Corinth was a, a, a detestable culture. Uh, they had this... Um, it was a large city, somewhere between 100,000 and maybe 500,000, somewhere in there, a large city. But they had this huge Acropolis, this huge temple to uh, Aphrodite. Um, there were a thousand priestesses uh, on duty in that temple uh, who engaged in liturgical uh, sex acts with worshipers. That was just typical of this culture. Uh, Corinth had all these bathhouses and all this crazy, weird uh, sexual stuff going on. Remember, this is the church where there's a man in the church who's having improper relations with his father's wife. And the people in the church are like, eh, whatever. That was just kind of typical of this uh, culture. They were getting drunk in church. They were having like these orgy type things going on in church. This is a despicable, detestable culture. And here's this church of fledgling Christians having a real trouble kind of um, because they've been immersed in this culture for, for so long. In fact, it's interesting in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was massive in its, in its heyday in the first century. It stretched really from you know, India all the way to England. It was massive. But at anywhere in that Roman Empire, if you were a particularly uh, untrustworthy scoundrel, you would be said to have Corinthian morals, regardless of where you were in the empire. That was the reputation of Corinth. And so here's Paul in verse 17 saying, I can't praise you. I can't compliment you. I can't condone what you're doing because it's, it's divisive and it's just flat out wrong what's, what's going off. It's way off base. And so it's so important when we uh, come together for the Lord's Supper, even though we're coming together and meeting in this digital space, this, this online community, it's so important that when we gather for the Lord's Supper that we do so in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper, coming to celebrate Jesus himself, that we come together in oneness. And so Paul says to this church, I can't, I can't commend you, uh, can't compliment you. You're not gathering in unity. You're not coming together as one. There's all kinds of stuff that's just wrong and divisive going on. And so really our, um, you know, our, our question for today is, you know, what, what about this time of self-examination? Why did the Corinthians need to examine themselves? Well, I think already we're beginning to see why, uh, to see some of the things that about their behavior uh, that they needed to examine. They needed to examine the fact that they were meeting together and doing more harm than good. Uh, that, that's a frightful thing to think about for a, for a local church. 
uh, coming together with wrong motives, coming together really as a group and just completely ignoring uh, what it is that they were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they're doing anything but. And we'll find out in verses to come here that, 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 that they actually just ruined the whole celebration of the Lord's Supper. Here's verse 18. Paul says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. In other words, here's Paul is saying, I've got some pretty dependable sources. There is some, some uh, Christian community that is reporting to Paul, uh, letting him know that when these Corinthian believers were getting together in a church context, that, that they weren't coming together as a unified church. They were coming together, had all these divisions, all these factions, um, and again, we're beginning to get a, a sense to see what it is that this Corinthian church was needing to examine. I think one of the, one of the reasons why it's difficult or somewhat difficult to grab the context of this first century Corinthian church is because we tend to think about the Lord's Supper in uh, you know, our 21st century uh, way of thinking about the Lord's Supper. And then we take that and we project that uh, 2,000 years ago onto this uh, Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church, and really the entire early church of the first 300 years, when they met to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they did it in an entirely different way than we do. The early church would look at our, our thimbles of juice, of Welch's grape juice, and our wafers or our croutons of bread. They wouldn't even recognize what we're doing. They would have no idea. You see, when the early church met, they always met for a meal. They met around tables. They didn't come into big buildings and sit in rows and, and have, a, have a crouton and a, and a thimble of juice. No, they, they didn't know what Welch's grape juice was. They had, they had real wine wine, but they would meet and they would have a banquet. And, and that banquet, that feast, the abundance of that banquet would be um, kind of a picture of the abundance of the gospel. And they would sit around tables and uh, they, would, they would eat together. And then after they ate, they would have what was called the symposium, which literally means to drink with. But after supper, they would, they would drink wine and they would have conversation. That was how they experienced the Lord's table. And I think, you know, We've opted for thimbles and croutons out of convenience. And I think we've really downsized the meal. And uh, it's, it's more difficult to see the abundance of the gospel with such a scaled down uh, meal. Imagine, um, imagine if we were all together in the same building and it's, uh, we're coming and we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're gonna do it the way that the early church did it for the first 300 years of their existence with a meal, with a, with a feast, with a banquet. And as part of that banquet, we'd celebrate the bread and the, and the cup. But some uh, insiders in the church arrive early and eat all the food. And all they leave is a few scraps, just a few lima beans and a couple of Brussels sprouts, which nobody wants. And then others come early and drink all the wine. And so the people, you know, the insiders of the church who've, who've come early and eaten on the food, well, they're just stuffed gluttonously full and they're having to undo the top button and they're just so full. And those who have come and drank all the wine, well, now they're just falling down drunk. And so when we arrive, it's like, what in the world is going on? 
Well, it was even worse in Corinth because the poor in that community depended on these meals. The meal that they got when they gathered with the church was the best meal they would have all week. It was essential to them. So imagine in Corinth, there are insiders in that Corinthian church, not the poor, not the homeless, but insiders who have some means and some wealth uh, arriving early and gluttonously eating all the food and then um, chugging all of the wine and becoming um, drunk. And then imagine the poor people show up and all the food is gone and all the wine is gone and the poor are shamed and embarrassed and publicly humiliated. Well, that's exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. The food that uh, was desperately needed by the poor was taken by gluttons and drunkards. And so Paul says, you know, number one, when you, when you come together, you're shaming the poor, the very people that you ought to be adoring and loving and serving and meeting their needs. You're shaming them. You're embarrassing them. You're humiliating them. And secondly, Paul's like, look what you're doing to the body and the blood of Christ. You're not allowing it to be celebrated corporately. Instead, you're just thinking of yourself. And so in Corinth, all these divisions existed and... And so here Paul says, you know, I, I'm hearing all these things. The, the broader Christian community is bringing me this, this information about these abuses that are going on in the Lord's table. And I'm inclined to believe them and correct me if I'm wrong. But you guys really need to examine your practices. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And this is Paul just saying, you know, uh, there are those in this Corinthian church who are seeking to follow after Jesus, uh, seeking to become more like Jesus. And as they do so, as they become more like Christ, as they progress in their discipleship journey, their lives are more and more going to be differentiated from those who are not following hard after uh, Jesus in the same way. Uh, let's jump to verse 20. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. So here's this church. They're full of discontent. They're ready for a good fight. They're ready to argue. They're divided, uh, gluttonous, drunkards, shaming the poor. They're not interested in the Lord's table. Uh, they've got their own agendas. They've got their uh, really competing agendas. For when you are eating, Paul goes on, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So here in verse 21, Paul's really showing us that when they gather for the Lord's Supper, it's really not for the Lord's Supper. And this is what they need to examine. They need to examine this behavior. They need to stop doing this. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. They're eating selfishly. They're getting drunk while the poor are going hungry and being put to shame. So think about this. Here, here's, here's what we tend to do. We tend to, uh, in, in our 21st century context, it's like we take a little, uh, um, like a little crane 
and, and we, we just hover it over 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we, and we uh, put it down on verse 28 and we grab verse 28 and we pull it out of that first century context and we move it forward 2,000 years and we set that one verse on a little pedestal and we shine a light on it and then we say, okay, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, you need to examine yourselves and we dim the lights and play the sad music and we, and we um, uh, try and dredge up all the, the wrong things we've done and maybe throw in some self-loathing for good measure and try and get forgiven so we can eat and drink uh, worthily. That is really not the intention at all of the Lord's Supper. That was never the meaning of let a, let a person examine himself or herself. So that, does it apply to you? Does it apply to me? Well, it applies to you if you are running into church buildings and eating all the food. Then by all means, examine that behavior. If you're running into church buildings and drinking all of the wine and getting drunk, by all means, uh, examine that behavior. Um, if you are gathering with the body of Christ for the Lord's Supper and you're shaming the poor, and not meeting their needs and humiliating them, by all means, um, examine that behavior. If you're coming to church ready for a good fight and for a good argument, by all means, um, examine that behavior. Let's jump to verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Those are the poor. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not uh, in this matter. And so here Paul, he's not speaking to the poor here. He's not speaking to the homeless here. He's speaking to the, to the, to the wealthier insiders who have homes, who have tables, who, who have food. And he's saying, if you are this hungry, like eat at home before you come. Have an appetizer. Have a, have a pre-meal before the meal. That way you won't be as ravenous when you come and you won't be inclined to take food from people who desperately need it. You can kind of hear Paul's frustration uh, in these verses. He is very concerned that this church learns to be a church of peace and a church of unity, a church where the needs of the poor are uh, prioritized and met. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. So what Paul is doing now, he's beginning to show what this celebration ought to look like. A time for bread and a time for wine and no hurry and no gluttony and no drunkenness and no selfishness and no impatience and no, um, you know, just looking after your own needs and wants, uh, not putting yourself first. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we've seen in these verses, Paul, you know, he's, he's frustrated. Uh, he's, he's irritated. He's annoyed uh, with this church. And now here he is showing what the celebration is supposed to look like. It's not about you filling your face. It's not about you getting drunk. It's about Jesus. 
It's about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And he uses the word remembrance. The Lord's Supper is, a, is about remembrance. You know, we're coming up on Remembrance Day. The Lord's Supper is about remembrance. It's a, it's a remembrance of what Jesus has done. It's a remembrance of what has happened. Some, uh, some look at the Lord's table as, as something new that happens. Nothing new happens at the Lord's table. It's a remembrance of what has happened. My uh, Catholic friends, and I, I have some very wonderful Catholic friends. In fact, uh, I hung out uh, with some of them just a couple of weeks ago for a whole week. I have learned way more from my Catholic friends, I think, than they have learned from me. But we do differ on some pretty significant uh, theological points. One is the bread and the cup. They believe and teach that when you take in the bread, it literally becomes the body of Jesus. And that when you take in the cup, it literally becomes the blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. And the reason they believe that and teach that is because they do not believe in the once for all forgiveness of Jesus. They don't believe in a finished work of Christ. And so week after week, they continue to put Jesus on the cross and as it were to re-sacrifice him week after week to get more forgiveness and to get more uh, cleansing. I believe that teaching is in error. I believe the Lord's Supper is to be done as a remembrance of Jesus and what he has done uh, rather than trying to activate something new from Jesus. And when we take the bread in just a few moments, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna toast heaven and we're going to say, God, we agree and we confess together uh, that the gift of your son and his once for all sacrifice on the cross is enough. And, and thank you. And we eat in remembrance uh, of that gift. Now, verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, here in verse 25, uh, the focus is on remembrance. Notice that when Jesus um, lifts up this cup, um, he's announcing a new covenant, a new testament, a new contract, as it were. If I were to ask you, when does the New Testament begin? Some of you might say, well, it begins in Matthew chapter 1. Some of you might say, well, it begins... Uh, with the Christmas story, it begins with the birth of Jesus, Jesus in a cradle. The New Testament does not begin in a cradle. It begins at the cross. The New Testament does not begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins with the blood of Jesus. The New Testament, the new covenant, the new contract is inaugurated at the cross and it's ratified with the blood of Jesus. Knowing that the New Testament does not begin until the cross helps us to understand the Gospels better, helps us to understand uh, the Sermon on the Mount better. We can read the Sermon on the Mount knowing that it is an Old Testament context and what Jesus is doing there in his teaching. It's kind of like he's landing one plane while uh, launching another plane, landing the plane of the Old Covenant and, and uh, launching the, the, the plane of the New Covenant. And uh, that is, that's a pretty helpful thing to know um, as we read uh, the scriptures. The new covenant is in his blood, not in his birth. Now, verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
By the way, how often should we have communion? Should it be every week? Should it be every month like we do? Should it be every quarter or, or every year? Well, the, the text here doesn't actually tell us. It, it simply says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is so, that's so typical of the new covenant of grace. The new covenant that's inaugurated the cross, ratified by the blood of Jesus, a new way of grace where we can have access to the very presence of God without temple, without human uh, priest, through Jesus alone. It's a way of grace. And it's not about rules and it's not about regulations. So the new covenant is not about, um, it's not about um, how much money you give. It's not about percentages. We're not even told what day to, to worship on. Uh, we're not told how often to you know, celebrate the Lord's Supper. No, in the New Testament, the, the incredible thing is that Jesus Christ um, cleans house and he moves in and he lives in us and he leads us from our heart. And so all of our life now, uh, wallet, uh, schedule, uh, bread, cup, um, um, it's, it's all about being led by Jesus from the heart. It's not about rules, not about regulations, it's not about what day, what amount, what frequency, and so on. Uh, verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what is this unworthy manner? Well, I'm guessing by this point in the letter, the Corinthians are beginning to understand what this unworthy manner is. It's eating gluttonously. It's drinking and becoming drunk. It's shaming the poor. It's being divisive and, and um, uh, all of these things. And, and so hopefully, you know, by this point, uh, some of these Corinthian insiders who were participating in these abuses are going to be going, Oh my goodness, that was me. I was one of those who came and ate all the food. And then poor Benjamin and, and his wife Martha and their five kids came and there was nothing for them uh, to eat. You know, if you're being selfish and insensitive and creating divisions and factions and fights, that's a, a, an unworthy manner. If you're being gluttonous and becoming drunk, that's an unworthy manner. And I think this was beginning to become kind of obvious to, to the Corinthians. Verse 28 this is kind of our key verse for today. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so the Lord's Supper is to be done in a timely manner, purposefully, uh, in celebration, eating and drinking together, in unity with brothers and sisters, um, in solidarity with the poor, uh, being sensitive, being loving to others. That's really the true context in which to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. I just want to say a couple of things really quick about, about um, uh, this thing of judgment. Uh, here, this is not the judgment of God. This is not like white throne judgment. This is not God with a gavel. The word that we see here in this context is the Greek word krino. And um, in various, in, in, in various uh, um, versions of that word krino are used in this context and sometimes translated judgment, sometimes translated discernment. What's really in view here is, is discernment. 
You see, this word crino uh, literally means to separate. When the word crino is used of God, it's translated judge or judgment. And when God judges, he does so righteously and he separates people. Okay, when God judges good and evil, uh, he does so righteously and he separates people. Um, think, like in Matthew 25, God is pictured as a farmer who separates the, the goats from the sheep and the goats are gathered on the left hand and the sheep are gathered on the right hand. So that's a picture of God's righteous judgment separating people. Whenever we judge, we are usurping a role that is exclusively the domain of God. That is why the New Testament tells us, do not judge. But we sometimes do. And when we judge, we separate people from their worth. Oh, Bob, that's so-and-so. Oh, Lois, she's such a this or that. We separate people from their worth. That's the exact opposite of love. Love affirms worth. Love ascribes worth to all others, even to our enemies. Why? Because all others are made in the image and likeness of God and worth Jesus dying for. When we judge, we're detracting worth. When we love, we're ascribing worth. So it's really the opposite. That's why in the New Testament, there's this like bold, flashing red light. Do not judge. Do love. Don't judge. What's in view here in this context is discernment. That's also the word crino. It also means to separate. Judgment is about people. Discernment is about things. Discernment is about separating healthy from unhealthy things, helpful from unhelpful things, edifying from things that tear down, um, uh, helpful as opposed to harmful things. And so here Paul is saying, you know, if you guys come together for the Lord's Supper and you're coming together with all this selfishness and you're coming together with all these, these uh, divisions and you're coming together in gluttony and drunkenness and shaming the poor, then I don't blame the broader Christian community when they exercise discernment about your abusive practices, when they discern that you're doing harmful, not helpful, uh, unhealthy as opposed to healthy things. I can't blame uh, other believers in the body of Christ when they exercise discernment about your abuses at the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. There are some teachers and, and preachers and such who teach that this is God doing this, that God somehow swoops down and he zaps Christians, some with weakness and some with sickness and some with death. Please, please, please keep in mind, Christian, that Jesus bore all of your sin on the cross, that Jesus bore all of your punishment on the cross. There is no more punishment for you. This is not God swooping down and zapping people with weakness and sickness and death. 
No, think about the context that we talked about here in Corinth. This is Ephesus on steroids. This is Sin City on steroids. Here are people who are drinking and drinking and drinking as a regular practice. And some of them are obviously addicted. I would think that a group of people who would come early and drink all the wine uh, may well have an addiction issue. It's very easy to get sick from alcohol. It's very easy to pass out, to become unconscious uh, by abusing alcohol. It's very easy to get um, sicknesses that are related to the abuse of alcohol, and some can eventually die from alcoholism. So here is a community that is abusing alcohol as a regular practice. Now, couple that with gluttony and presumably obesity. And then add to the mix this, this um, rampant promiscuity in this despicable culture. So add in all manner of sexually transmitted diseases and you can begin to see the potential for weakness and sickness and even death. So this isn't God zapping Christians with sickness and weakness and death because of their wrong motives and their wrong behaviors. If God zapped people with death because of wrong motives and wrong behaviors, you'd be dead and I'd be dead, right? It amazes me that there are preachers, teachers, who on the one hand will talk about the finished work of Christ and Jesus paid it all, and then on the other hand saying, well, you better be careful to do communion right or God might kill you. Well, look at verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So again, this isn't, this isn't the judgment of God. This isn't like the great white throne judgment. This isn't God with a gavel. This is about... This is about discerning. Here's Paul saying, if you were more discerning, Corinthians, if you were more discerning about your own behavior and about your own motives, you would not be making yourself the subject of the discernment of the broader Christian community. Verse 32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What is Paul saying there? Well, I think one of the things he's saying is like, have you ever had... Um, <clears throat> a Christian brother or sister with right motives and out of love and in gentleness, they come to you and they say, I just, I just want to have a quiet word with you. I just want to bring this thing to your attention. And they confront you with something and they're right and their discernment is accurate. And, and, and um, uh, the Lord uses this to teach you and the Lord uses that to bring discipline uh, to you, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. This is the judgment of the community. Um, and the Lord using that. The Lord using the, um, the, the discernment of the community uh, to bring discipline to his church. And even Paul's letter, even this whole letter is itself discipline. Um, Dis you know, discipline is not a negative thing. Discipline is a good thing. Um, I think we would do well to, to distinguish discipline from punishment. There's a number of distinctions, but let me just give you one for today. Punishment is about the past. Okay? Christian, Jesus Christ has bore 100% of your punishment. There is no more punishment 
for you. Punishment is about the past, but discipline is about the future. Um, discipline is, 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 is a good thing. God says, those whom I love, I discipline. You and I um, want to be disciples of Jesus. That's the same word. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow the discipline of, of Jesus. And so this is, you know, this is about teaching. This is about mentoring and, and um, you know, God using the community to help uh, bring discipline to, to his church. Well, let's, you know, how does, how does Paul end this, this whole talk here? Like, what's his point? How's he going to wrap it up? Does he wrap it up by saying, okay, so next time you have communion, dim the lights, cue the sad music, get all introspective, maybe throw in some self-loathing for good measure, dredge up all the sin that you can think of, plead with God to forgive you and give you more cleansing and to make you somehow worthy uh, to eat or to drink. Is that how Paul wraps this thing up? Absolutely not. It's very interesting, his summary statement here in verse 33. So then, okay, there's the wrap-up. So then, in light of everything I've said, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. There's the point. You should all eat together. Not some of you racing ahead. You should all eat together. Not butting in line and getting ahead of the poor. You should all eat together. The early church knew something that we have forgotten, and I think we've forgotten it to our own harm. We've really lost the art of the table, of gathering together and eating together. The church did that for 300 years, and it just blossomed. I think we've done ourselves a disservice through diminishing our gathering at tables and reducing the Lord's table to to such a small sample. We've done it out of convenience. I understand that, but I, I don't think it's done us any favors. Well, that was the NIV. Let me show you the NLT, uh, same verse, verse 33. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. Isn't that good? Instead of racing to the front of the line, why don't you try racing to the back of the line and all eat together. Final verse, anyone who's hungry, should eat something at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So that when you meet together, rather than making yourself the subject of discernment, you make yourself the subject of celebration. Okay, here's a 45 second review. Okay, here's what's going on in Corinth. Some were showing up early, eating all the food. Others were drinking all the wine. Some of them are drinking so much it made them sick. Others were passing out or maybe even dying from alcohol addiction. And so Paul instructed them to be considerate, to examine their rude and selfish practices and to wait for one another. God was not killing Christians or making them sick. Christian, remember this. Jesus took all of your punishment, all of your sin on the cross. There's no punishment left for you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some were 
Some in the Christian community were rightly pointing out the selfishness and the abuses that were going on in Corinth. God was making his appeal through them to bring discipline to his church. And finally, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. So let's celebrate. I want to invite you to take the bread, hold it in your hand, and let's toast heaven. And together we say, God, thank you for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe and we confess and we acknowledge together in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ that the gift of Jesus was enough, that his once for all sacrifice for sin on the cross is enough that we can have new life and forgiveness in you. Let's eat together in remembrance of Jesus. And let's take the cup. And just like at a wedding, let's toast Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for the new contract, the new and living way that you inaugurated at the cross and that you ratified with the shedding of your own blood that we can have access and relationship with God not through temple, not through human priests, but through you, Lord Jesus, as our great high priest and as our sacrifice. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the gift of your shed blood. As we drink, we remember you. Let's drink together. Well, friends, let me close with this today. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit fill you up this week. Amen. We'll see you soon.